All right. Country boys, I love. You're recording, aren't you? I am. <laughs> I feel like vines are public domain by now, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, hello, everyone. Sorry about that. Welcome back to This Is Not a History Lecture. <sighs> well, I, I just told Kat all of this, but I've had uh, a week. Oh, I, for- I forgot. I saw her text. I forgot. So, Emma, you're in Dallas right now. R.I.P. Oh, that's what I- my brain read it and didn't process it. Until you just said the word Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, my brain's really. I saved a cat today, and ever since then, my brain's just been. You saved a cat wide. today. It was you under didn't someone's tell me car. That. It was under someone's car, and I was like, they were about to drive away, and I was like, stop! And I felt very heroic that I did not nice. let a cat get torn up by someone's wheel. Also, I feel like I have an emotional connection to that cat because we do feed that cat at work. Oh yes, it's. I was wondering if it was mm-hmm. one of those cats. Yeah. Um, it was the gray cat. Yeah, yeah, you should. I always, you know that thing where cats will, like, crawl up in your engine? Yes. That terrifies me. I know. In I, the winter, there's so many feral cats around here that I literally bang on my, I'll bang on my, the hood of my car. Yeah. And, like, I don't, like, check every wheel well perfectly, but if I'm, like, like, when I start the engine, I, like, let go of the brake a little bit, and then I brake again, just enough to, like, let them know, like, get out of here. Scurry away. But, yeah. Yeah. Um... Well, that's nice. It's good. I'm sure the, cl- the cat heroic. appreciates it. Mm-hmm. Yes. There's also Sergio the squirrel living outside my window now. He's this very window? loud. In mm-hmm. your apartment? Oh. Mm-hmm. He's there about 90% of the time. He likes to wake me up. He's a very loud, and it was really sweet because the other day I thought he was going to kill me, and then I thought he was friendly, <laughs> and so I poked the glass, and his little like paw, he put his paw up to the other side of the glass like he was going to hold my finger. Aww. It was so cute, and I was like, well, this is a very domesticated squirrel, and then I found out that he is not a friendly, in the words of Jedediah from Night at the Museum. Okay, well, I feel like as long as he stays behind your your, He knocks the screen pane. off of my window. Well... So, he's, so he's, that's a he's threat. making progress. He's, he's gonna come in. He really you is. better watch out. <laughs> I've named him Sergio, though. Sergio, that's a good. If name. you hear any weird yelping, scratching noises, like it literally sounds like a drowned cat. Yeah, last, like squirrel noises are so weird. So if you hear that, I apologize. Just know that I don't have a pet, but I do have Sergio. Sergio, what a what a name. That's Thank a, you. That's a name. I need it to be alliteration with Sergio the squirrel. Anyway, how are you doing? <laughs> Well, as I just told you, there's a lot going on in my life right now. Um, first and most important is that just want to say it in the podcast world, wishing my dad recovery for his arm. Yes. He is a contractor and he cut himself pretty bad a couple of nights ago. So, yeah, because my dad is not a hospital person, like not a hospital person. Yeah. So when my mom called me and was like, I'm in the hospital with your dad, I was like, oh, no, this is serious. So... Yeah, and it freaked everyone out, but he's uh, doing better. He's recovering. He had to have surgery, but um, hopefully he'll be able to, to actually use his fingers again. Yeah, Did, were they able to reconnect the tendon? I asked I asked my mom if they said anything about that, and did she, she might have gotten distracted or something when she says, oh, no, 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 this is what she said. She said that he'll need physical therapy, but that he should be good. Wow. Okay, that's great. If he made it all the way down, like, through part of the bone, that's impressive. Yeah, he cut through one-third of the bone. So if that (laughs) gives you an idea, if you're squeamish, I'm really sorry about that. Um, I am, but we also talked about the radium girls two weeks ago, so I feel like we have the standards. (laughs) My mom sent me a really lovely video. No. Mm -hmm. No. Hard pass. Of his arm. I'm out. Open. Uh Uh-uh. And him wiggling his fingers, and you can see the little... Please stop. I'm sorry. 
I mean, the worst I've ever seen in person was when we used to work at the Michaels and someone in the frame shop got bad. It was bad. It was all the way down to her bone too. And I remember yeah. like, like holding it closed as we like got her to the, and I can't do it again. I, yeah. I was running on adrenaline mm-hmm. and then later mm-hmm. I was like, what did I just do? Yeah. My cousin broke her arm. Um, at no, my house. it didn't go through. Did it? No, it didn't. But it broke in two places. So it was like, and then oh. again. And she was so freaked out that every time she looked at it, she would, like, start screaming and crying. She was, like, nine at the time. And so I just, like, put a pillow on top of it so she couldn't (laughs) see it. I was, like, stop looking at it. (laughs) There was a girl that broke her arm and the bone went through the skin. And I I have never seen that. I... Uh-uh. I uh uh-uh. verge of passing out can't do it yeah no that's a lot so that's a lot so well, I'm glad your dad's okay yeah me too so I uh, haven't talked to my mom today but I assume everything is going well so and I know like going under first surgery and everything was really scary for us yeah. too because like you never know and with my dad he has like diabetes and stuff so yeah you never know so <laughs> I'm glad he's okay yeah um but yeah, so other than that, um, in other news, my car is costing me about $1,300. We love that. Um, and I won't have it until Friday, and it's currently Wednesday, and I put, gave it, put sent it to the shop on Monday. So I'm stuck in my house. <sighs> but it's fine. I'm not spending money. Hey. I had my roommate pick me up some grocery, not pick me up some groceries, but take me to go do a curbside. Mm. And so I have food for the week. But it's very frustrating because I'm like, oh, I want to go stop by and get a nice tea at a tea place or whatever. And I can't. It's very privileged of me to say, but this is why I can't live in New York. I like driving too much. Yeah. Well, in in Texas, you have to be able to drive. Yeah. Like you need a car. Especially in the town we're in. So. Yeah. So anyway, that's uh, that's my update. I'm sorry that your week is rough. (laughs) Yeah, it's okay. (laughs) It's you know what life i wish life it comes could all be fast. saving cats but uh, alas tis not yeah life comes at you fast so is anyway i think that's no, just a saying you're, that's you're in good hands no life comes at you fast is a saying one of the insurance places uses it is it i'm like 99 percent sure is it oh, it sounds like a commercial i've heard a million times so maybe i'm just imagining things um no your meme mm-hmm I don't think I've ever seen that meme. Anyway. Um, nationwide. Nationwide. Thank you. Yep. So, it's commercial. I mean, you know, I, that's it for me. So, well, well, do we want to jump straight into the his story? I think we should. In my case. Had a couple long episodes lately, so yeah. maybe we should okay. get to the point here. Well, in my case, it's a his story and a her story. You know what? I'm really interested to see this because... I did not know... So, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to hear this because, you know, in our area, in our region of the world, in Texas, mm-hmm. they did spend a lot of time here. They spent so, a lot of time in Texas. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm excited to hear because I don't... I don't actually know. I didn't know a great detail. I know who yeah. they were, the public perception, the persona. Uh-huh. Right. But we, I did not know the details of Bonnie I guess we and should, Clyde. I was going to say, I guess we should say who we're actually yeah. talking about. Bonnie and Clyde is my topic for today. Um, and I think that's also due... Also due to the fact that they are very sensationalized. And they yeah. always have been. If you look at their historiography about how they've been perceived throughout history, it's changed drastically. So, um, sorry, I'm going to move my mic a little bit. There we go. So, 
I will attempt to represent it as well as I can while still giving the facts. But I'm going to start off with a little bit about each of them and their younger lives. So, Bonnie Parker was born on October 1st in 1910 in Rowena, sorry, Rowena, Texas. I also knew that because of the Broadway musical. Um, she was the second of three children. I see that smile. The, the, about Bonnie and Clyde? Yeah. Oh. It's really good. It doesn't surprise me that there's one. I guess I've just never heard it's of Laura it. It's Laura Osnes and Jeremy Jordan. It's like I don't, really famous, I don't very famous people Broadway are. people. Very, very famous okay. Broadway people. Yes. Um, she was the second of three children to Henry and Emma Parker. She really wanted to be like a famous actress. She grew up doing all these pageants and shows. She was determined to, you know, see her name in lights someday. And this is when film stars have become all the rage. I mean, you got like Clara Bow and all of those famous, like, ideal women that are mm-hmm. coming across the big screen. And I mean, I, I guess every woman would kind of, well, not every, but a lot of women would want that lifestyle, like the that glamour. Glitz. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so. She and her family did relatively well for themselves when she was younger. Her father was a bricklayer and made decent enough money, but he passed away when she was only four years old in 1914, which caused them to have to move out of Rowena and back towards Cement City. And her mom was trying to earn a bit of a living wage by working at a factory, but they were definitely not well off without her dad's income. And... It's also very hard for women still to find, you know, a payable working wage in this mm-hmm. time period, especially if you're going to try to support a family. Mm-hmm. And seeing that Bonnie didn't have a ton of options for social mobility and already having kind of a thing with one of her classmates named uh, Roy Thornton, she ended up getting married when she was only 16 years old. Technically, wow. she was six days shy of her 16th birthday. Wow. It was kind of a strategic decision, I think. Um between the security of having an income, someone to rely on. But the marriage itself was not the most traditional or healthy one. Roy was not necessarily loyal or steadfast husband. He would, like, go away for long periods of time. Mm. I don't know if he claimed they were for work or what, but he would be gone a lot. And when he was there, he would be pretty abusive to Bonnie. Mm. So much so that she ended up actually not living with him for all the time they were together, it was kind of an on and off thing. She would stay with her mother quite often. But eventually, Roy had gotten involved in some illegal stuff during one of his disappearances and ended up getting arrested for robbery with a five-year sentence. She was actually never able to truly get a divorce from him. Um, when she died in the shootout with Clyde, she was still wearing the wedding ring that oh, Roy oh, wow. gave her because they were technically hmm. still married. Um, and Roy was still in prison, like... By the t- in between the time that Roy went to prison, Bonnie did all this stuff, like, went off on the lamb with Clyde. Like, he oh. did, he heard that she died while he was still in prison. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, but before, you know, before she met Clyde and everything, she just ended up having to support herself and do the best she could with Roy's marriage and everything. So she was waitressing for a while, but she did get, get laid off during, what do we talk about a lot on here? The Great Depression. <laughs> <laughs> you want to tell him about that or should I? You tell him. You put okay. me on the spot. I, it was a joke and it ended up being very morbid. Um, <laughs> we were in class and we were getting presentations and I thought like Cal was like paying attention. And, I like, was paying attention. I knew exactly oh, what you I thought, meant. I thought I caught you when you literally like weren't paying attention at all. No, I, I was. Bad. I was play. I was like paying attention. I knew oh, exactly what you're okay. talking about. But you called me. You called me out and I wasn't expecting it. And so I was like. <laughs> 
what <laughs> so background we were in class and i was giving a presentation and it's like very informal like a little just to go up there and explain your topic really fast mm-hmm. and i was talking about mine and the um how a factory had closed due to the great depression and i said um it's a small class we all we all know each other pretty much and so i said yep and what happens right around this time period and then i point back at kaylee <laughs> And, so and I was waiting for her to say the Great Depression. I, and then our professor, and she like just stares at me and I was like, the Great Depression. And I think everyone in class thought I was making fun of her. <laughs> <laughs> and it was literally like, I was like, I don't know how to tell all these people that we have a podcast. And whenever we talk about the Great Depression, it's always Kaylee. <laughs> so it looked like I was just being an asshole. You're just like, <laughs> and who's depressed in this class? <laughs> you. <Kaylee. laughs> What I felt happening? so bad and everyone laughed really hard but then I was like wait oh god they took it the wrong way it's okay because I went a few people later and my entire powerpoint for some reason decided to <laughs> Did get translated into Arabic no Hebrew oh Hebrew <laughs> like the formatting got messed up so Kaylee just it looked, this it whole looked like freaking Garibald my computer it, it, it looks so like it was such a normal font and I pulled it up on Nothing about that day made any sense. And it was in Hebrew. <laughs> and so we had to make some jokes about how, oh, this is biblical. <laughs> anyway, those days of presentation were great. And now Kaylee yes. will never forget the term Great Depression. <laughs> yeah, because I forgot it all the time before this. Uh, anyway. Yeah. So with the Great Depression, Bonnie loses her job. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> Poor Les. Yeah, yes. She, I, she, honestly, yeah, really, she was. I feel like she goes through it. She really in did. The story. Like she just was hanging on for dear life the whole yeah. time and got caught in some really bad circumstances. Yeah. Um, did she later willingly choose to be a part of those circumstances? Yes, but for now, she was really just kind of getting tossed to and fro, going with whatever she could. Mm-hmm. So, let's go look at what our boy Clyde's been doing this whole time. Clyde Barrow was born um on March twenty fourth in nineteen oh nine. He was the sixth of eight children, but I saw one report that he was six of seven, so I'm not sure if maybe one died at birth or something. Mm-hmm. But he was born to Henry and Cummy Barrow. He was born out in Teleco in Texas. So they were both Texas natives. He grew up on a family farm. He was always pretty interested in music. He played the guitar that he kind of taught himself, and he also taught himself saxophone growing up. His family was actually made up of relatively poor tenant farmers, it was so bad that they had trouble feeding the family at some points, and so his dad kind of gave up on it and moved them to West Dallas, where he opened up a gas station. Mm-hmm. You know, good financial choice. Gas stations would be booming in and out for the next say, few years. Yeah, yeah, pretty yeah. essential. Mm-hmm. Um, I've I've always wondered if that love of like that desire for stardom and music and performance kind of brought them together because they. You know, their whole whirlwind romance persona did seem to actually happen. And I'll get into that a little bit later. Mm-hmm. But they definitely had some stuff that, like, they bonded over. And I've always thought that, like, idea of performing, of being unforgettable, was probably really appealing to both of them. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I don't know if he ever could have pursued a career in music if he tried. But his brother and some of his friends got him into some kind of petty crimes around town pretty early. They weren't the best influence. Um. He didn't lose his love of music, that's for sure. I mean, he had to ditch his guitar during a confrontation with the police and asked his mother if she could get it back out of police custody. And the police were like, um, 
no <laughs> go bust my guitar out of jail basically yeah um Mom, well and his saxophone apparently was found in the back of the car when they were killed oh yeah okay i, I did not know that so i was like oh but like i said he had gotten into some rough stuff so he was no stranger to getting in trouble earlier especially by his older brother specifically buck barrow was the nickname um his life may have been very different if he had actually been allowed to enlist in the U.S. Navy as he tried to at one point. He mm. might have gone, you know, the whole straight and narrow. But due to physical restrictions from some sort of childhood illness, that I'm not sure. There were a lot of speculations on what it was, but something made him, like, weaker, um, kind of sickly as a child, and he was rejected. Um, but they were, he was probably about a couple inches taller than me in pictures you can see he's like thin but he doesn't look emaciated or like ill or anything mm-hmm. so maybe it left some part, like lung damage or something like that that made him not qualify yeah so he stayed around the family farm got involved with his brothers in their little mischief had a couple of girlfriends but was never married like bonnie was but they're both kind of going about their own lives and the two of them meet in january of 1930 when bonnie was only 19 years old they were at a mutual friend's house in Dallas, um, near where Clyde lived. I saw one source that said Clyde had actually been called home because his sister broke her arm and he was going to, like, go see her and everything. And when he got there, Bonnie was already there helping take care of her friend. Hmm. And he was like, well, little lady. Oh, who's this now? Who's this hey. now? Hey. Hey. <laughs> but no matter how they met, they reportedly from multiple sources hit it off very well because only a few weeks later, um, Clyde was arrested, but Bonnie, you know, for some of his other petty stuff, but Bonnie mm-hmm. visited him in prison all the time. Nonetheless, uh, of their, his reputation. And I think her mother kind of warned her against him a little bit and didn't mm-hmm. approve, which is a theme you'll see a couple times. Her mom was like, you've corrupted my daughter. But she ends up visiting him in uh, his cell. Well, he was brought down to the Waco County Jail where his cellmate Frank Turner was. And when she went to visit them down in Waco, she got a bus all the way down there. Um, Frank Turner told her, like, hey, if you can get this gun from my house, I can break it us out of here. Me and Clyde <laughs> can get out. And so he draws her out this very detailed map of oh where God. his gun was hidden in his house. And she manages to go find it and smuggles it into them in in the county jail and sneaks them the gun underneath the table of visitors on March 11th of 1930 so that he could break out. Of course, this wasn't the most well-thought-out escape plan, so they were caught almost immediately, but they did make it all the way to Ohio. <laughs> I don't know why you go like, hey, we're in Waco, let's get to Ohio. Also... Almost immediately, but they're already in Ohio. I know. <laughs> like, what? I think they were, like, driving. I was going to say. Like, pretty fast, um, switching out plates and everything. But, like, when I, I mean, say relatively quickly, I mean, like, they didn't go out on the lamb immediately. Like, they yeah. caught, they tracked him down relatively right. soon. But I guess they pedaled to metal because they did get all the way to Ohio. You know what? Or maybe I mixed that up from another point. But I definitely saw a source that said that they made it all the way to Ohio first. Okay. Well, you know... Ohio wouldn't be my number one choice of, like, getaway destinations. But, but that's the thing. No one else wants to get, drive a getaway car out to the middle of Ohio. So, like... Just like, go hide in the cornfields, I guess. Exactly. Like, who's going <laughs> who's gonna, to, like, search every single cornfield, you know? That's fair. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe yeah. they're just smart. This is why I'm not a criminal. Yeah. Because I just... Yeah, I'm just, just not... We weren't prepared. We haven't committed to the corn. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> what the hell does that even mean? I don't know. <laughs> I want on a t-shirt, though. <laughs> We're going to just piss off all of our Midwest listeners. I no, Don't get me wrong. I appreciate it. Cornbread? It's a southern staple. I need. We need the corn. I love corn. Commit to but... the corn. <laughs> anyway, um, they communicated consistent communicated consistently throughout letters. Where, um, like while he was in jail and everything, at one point, um, he even called her his little wife. Like they had lots of endearments, mm. and I think there were restrictions that only like your family and in like certain acquaintances could communicate with you in prison at this point. So mm. that might have been his term to like solidify their story. Right. We can we can talk because we're married, yeah. but definitely we're not legally married. Um, she was still married to Roy, her first husband, but um, yeah. So when he got Is she visiting Roy in in prison, I don't think I so. never saw a report that she did. Mm, yeah. I mean, if he was abusive, also uh, I forgot I'd be about like, that. Okay, like, I forgot about that part. You. Okay, um, for- never mind. The, yeah. she's valid not to visit. Okay. Oh yeah, I forgot yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah. Yep. Um, never mind, Bonnie. I did not mean to. <laughs> no, sorry. Uh, yeah, but I mean. Clyde being caught and put back and everything, she's like, oh, well, I gotta, I gotta talk to someone. I gotta be writing letters to someone. So eventually, after he was recaptured and they've been writing and everything for a while, he got transferred. Um, with his previous charges and everything, they were like, okay, we have to add those charges and your previous sentence before your breakout to now add on a breakout attempt and charges for that. So he ended up being charged with a 14-year sentence at a place that required hard labor from its inmates called the Eastham Prison Farm. He only ended up serving about 17 months of that sentence, but the treatment he endured while he was inside there was so bad that he said he would rather die than ever go back there. Jeez. It included um, violent abuse and uh, harassment, including what was probably some sexual mm. um assault from a man named ed crowder later clyde actually killed him it was his first kill although he was never charged with it because one of his friends that he'd made at the prison named aubrey scally was serving a life sentence already and was like i'll take the fall for it i mean there's no hope of me getting out i'm on a life sentence so like yeah i'll take the fall um good friend i know i was like wow really helping each other out there i mean if it's but I also, like, he don't fault Clyde to... for that one. Like, no, I was going to say, if he did actually suffer... Any, ab- like, abuse, abuse of that type, like, yeah. uh, of course. Like, yeah. Like, do we support... What is it? Support women's rights, but I do support women's wrongs or whatever. That trend that's been going around. Yeah. Yeah, women's um, wrongs. Women's wrongs, yeah. yeah. It's like, you know, I support people who defend themselves. So... Mm-hmm. While he was in this prison, he didn't know that his mother was already making an individual plea to the Texas governor at the time, but the conditions were so bad that he was like, I have to take myself out of the working pool. Kind of like the people who lie on their, like, draft forms, like, oh, <clears throat> Donald Trump. Um, I, have a, <clears throat> I, I have, like, a foot owie, and I can't uh, go serve. Uh, so he's like, okay, but I have to actually make it believable. Like, I have to injure myself so oh badly God. that oh I cannot be this working. It's going to be tough, isn't it? He did chop off some of his toes. Oh, there it is. That'll do it. That'll do it. Yeah. That, get uh-huh. it done, man. That'll do it for sure. Dang, can I make you work no more? I really do wish he checked with his mother, though, because he was less than a week from getting... Oh, no. <laughs> and now he doesn't have any toes anymore. He does have some. I think he only cut off, like, two or three. No, he, still... has... <laughs> he has, like, seven, seven toes. toes. Yeah. Um, I really wish he checked with his mom. 
This is why you call your mom every night, kids. You know, if you have a update. Um, I know that you don't have HBO Max, and so don't come at me when I say this. Mm -hmm. But if you would watch the show I've been telling you to watch, I can make a joke about it. Make the joke. No, because you won't get it. Okay. (laughs) Keep that on the tip of your tongue, and when I've watched the show in a couple weeks, we'll come back to it. We'll see. Um, Okay. (laughs) So, yeah. um, It was like six days later that his mom managed managed to get him freed with a special scenario plea um but it did permanently change the way that he would walk in fact he couldn't wear shoes at all while he was driving because of some balance or something like that and he had to drive in his socks which huh. is an interesting thing because he was known for his like daredevil driving and his daring maybe it makes stuff. him more agile maybe sock driving maybe i don't know but i he... don't know i've never driven in my socks so Who's to say? I think it's illegal in Texas. Actually, no, no it's they, not. Made it, they made they it made it illegal. illegal. <laughs> yeah, um, that's right. Which freaks me out because the thought of driving without shoes on makes me very <laughs> uncomfortable. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> yeah, but he was officially granted parole in February of 1932, and within the next couple of months, Bonnie was like, "I'm a, I'm gonna do it for real. I'm gonna get involved. I'm gonna commit. She's gonna commit." Nice. And she committed to the corn. Um, <laughs> She, um, the first, like, documented one where she was, like, in trouble was when she joined the gang and a couple of the thefts and robberies and carjackings, but she was driving the getaway car for a robbery. She was not in on it, but she was driving and they arrest her, but she eventually got released for it. I don't know if she played the, like, woman kind of card or maybe she said, like, oh, but I didn't go in the store, so they let her go. I don't know. But... After I swear I didn't know what they were doing, sir. I was just driving the car. I was just told to wait here. They were so mean and they had guns. I was so frightened. Well, at this point, she's already committed to Clyde, so I don't think she did sell them out like that. But, yeah. <laughs> um, they do escalate. As, you know, she does get sent to jail for a couple of months after stealing a car um, before she was released in 1932 and goes back to join Clyde. Statistically, even now, women are less likely to get penalties for like mm-hmm. as long for the same crimes as men but mm-hmm. also there is like the whole conversation about how like attractive women get lesser sentences than mm-hmm. women who are traditionally not as attractive as mm-hmm. others it's it's very complicated and very interesting but this is when they start getting in it deep together because if you want a full detailed chronology of every crime and wrongdoing there are some online but i would be here for like hours and this is already quite a few notes so you can go check that other online source thing called google there's one really good one on the <laughs> i sorry you can go check that online source thing what's it google. called what's it called what what's the name of that little google. search what what is that honey what you call it google firefox <laughs> the google machine, the google machine. <laughs> well there is a really good timeline from the world history project which i was happy to see and the fbi actually has a whole page dedicated to them you know what? The FBI has a lot of pages dedicated to people. I've noticed do. that doing yeah. these like, notes for this podcast. I'm like, y'all really uh, watching us. They often get portrayed solely as bank robbers. Um, and while they did rob a few banks, not all of them were super lucrative. I think the talk about the bank robberies are really emphasized because this is the Great Depression. And they mm-hmm. had this very Robin Hood persona about themselves. And I mean, they were jaded towards the government. They were openly jaded towards the government and spoke out against it. And when they stole from banks, you know, it, it helps perpetuate that, that whole public 
affection for them. Like they're just mm. taking what's theirs. It's what's right. due. You know, all of us yep. are struggling. They're just doing what everyone else is too scared to do. Mm-hmm. But in reality, they were actually hitting a lot of small stores like gas stations and groceries, a lot of mom and pop shops. Don't they love were, that. No, we don't. And they were less high profile targets, so they were less likely to get caught. And these took place mainly across five states, Texas, Oklahoma, Missouri, New Mexico, and Louisiana. They liked to stay close to those state lines so you could cross back and forth and get away from a specific jurisdiction if they needed to flee without being pursued. Because, you know, the minute you cross state lines, it becomes someone else's issue. Mm -hmm. And while you can, I think, chase them across state lines, it becomes a lot more complicated to try and charge someone. Mm -hmm. But the police knew them already to be very dangerous and rather ruthless when it came to their robberies and killing. The public just wasn't on board yet. The public still for a long time saw them as, like, justified vigilantes. Some of these states had just been especially hard hit by the depression. So they were even more sentimental towards the cause. They were like, well, yeah, like uh, we're agriculture and agriculture got hit so hard by this. And eventually the dust bowl and everything like they're just as jaded. They're like, it probably helps that they came from, you know, working working class, Mm -hmm. small town, Texas. Mm -hmm. It's not a Batman thing. It's a real Robin Hood thing. It's a real Robin Hood thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Batman versus Robin Hood. Oh my God. I just realized Batman and Robin yeah oh wow did you nope never made that connection before okay (laughs) well cat has another existential crisis we will continue about batman yep um okay i constantly have existential. i feel like you should don't waste your time on having one about batman okay that's a fair valid point (laughs) so bonnie really is helping the image at this point because she's a woman and a lot of people, because of stereotypes, because of the way media and the films portray, you know, the gangs and all this, it's very hard for them to believe that a sweet little woman could, you know, be dangerous or threatening or truly do something evil or be malicious. Mm-hmm. It also helps that Bonnie is like 4'11". A hundred pounds. She's small. She's petite. If this girl held a gun, you'd probably think like, damn, it's going to throw her back 10 feet the minute (laughs) she pulls a trigger, you know? Yeah. So she's really helping Clyde with that image. And he's not super tall either. Like I said, he's a couple inches taller than me. Well, he was somewhere around five, seven. Um, Yeah, that's not too tall. Um, And I think at the turn of the century, the average height based on military records was like five, five or something like that. Now it's five ten to five eleven. I think I could be a couple inches off there, but I know that nutrition over the last century has improved enough where we do mm-hmm. see statistic difference in height. But um, yeah, Bonnie, even by those standards, is pretty short. So yeah. she helps that persona a little bit about the delicate woman. And of course, the places these they're hitting, these mom and pop shops don't tend to have as much cash on them. So they end up performing more of them to, you know, gather as much money as they would from like one mm-hmm. bank hit. The problem it's it's like a what is it called? A catch twenty two? Mm-hmm. By not hitting the high profile things like banks, you gotta hit the small ones. But by yep. hitting the small ones and having to do it more often, you're leaving more of a trail for the police to be That's able to predict true. where you're going. Yeah, there's no good option, I guess. Mm-hmm. And the most notable years of their spree occur between 1932 and 1934. And that's right as depression's getting, like, real bad. Yeah, 32 is a rough year. Mm -hmm. And so that, like I said, that leaving that trail behind them makes it a lot easier for the cops to catch up. They were almost caught, well, a few times, but there are two times that are extremely notable. The first is on April 13th of 1933. They had rented an apartment in Joplin, Missouri after Buck 
um, Clyde's older brother, if you'll remember, was released from prison. And he had been staying, they had all been staying in that apartment for a couple weeks. Like, uh, Blanche is Buck's wife. And Bonnie and Clyde, it's like the four of them. They're hanging out okay. together. They're like, oh, let's celebrate, take a couple weeks off. We've got enough money to hole up here for a little while. Mm-hmm. But on that day, on April 13th, two cop cars pull up in front of the building. And Clyde sees them and almost immediately is like, well, shit. Like, mm, knows know. what they're, they, yeah. they're here. And the shooting starts almost immediately. It, one police officer is killed and another is injured. But all four of them managed to escape like all four of our vigilante criminals not vigilantes i should call them criminals because that's what they are mm-hmm. uh all four of the criminals make it out blanche had escaped uh, somehow got separated from them a little bit but made it to like a rendezvous point where they could pick her up this is the house in which they found pictures um that you know like you, you, they did a little photo shoot bonnie and clyde did <laughs> so if you look up photos of bonnie and clyde you'll see some of her like holding a shotgun basically like to his chest and giving like a halfway smile kind mm. of thing um there's one where she's got her yeah. foot propped up on a car with a c- cigar even though it's rumored i mean she had like a cigarette she preferred but they didn't really smoke cigars but with the gun and the cigar it's very it's very gang it's uh-huh. very you know italian mob like all and that Ooh. all that stuff's about to hit you know Al Capone's not quite there yet, but like, you know, well, all the prohibition now. Yeah. Yeah. So, so. like it's, it really mm-hmm. helps that image. And a minute those photos get leaked to the press, that's what they jump on. Mm. This persona of this big rough and tough gang. That's just doing what they can to survive in the depression. So those photos are often what you'll see, but they found like a whole stash of them in the house that Bonnie that's and Clyde so had taken together. They, let's go take some pictures. That's so funny. Let's go pose with the car. Like, yeah, hey, get your gun. <laughs> which says a lot about their mentality too. I'd be really interested to hear what a criminal profiler has to say looking back on Bonnie's poetry and their pictures and everything mm-hmm. about the bravado, the way they saw themselves. If they really thought they were doing the right thing. Oh, I'm, sh- I'm, I'm sure, sure they were. I'm not sure if the right thing is what they thought, but I think that they were justified probably. They thought they were justified. Well, I think that they were feeding into the persona of mm-hmm. being that. Whether or not they thought they were doing the right thing, they liked the fame that that mm-hmm. persona gave them. Okay. That yeah. was what I yeah. would say. You know I, what I mean? I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Again, we are not criminal profilers. We have made this disclaimer before. You know what? <laughs> One of the podcast shows, mm-hmm. um, it's actually a few, it's one or two of them, but it's like called Serial Killers. Oh, all have, like, I really... listened, was literally listening to it today. Yeah. Um it's the one where there's the man and the woman and it's greg and i forget the lady's name uh greg and victoria something like that uh, but she always has her disclaimer mm-hmm. <laughs> she's, like, she's like we've done research but we are not you know licensed psychologists which... well greg says that oh that's true <laughs> and then she goes thanks greg yeah and it's like it's like a joke in my family because my mom listens to that show and like in the mornings when she's like taking my brothers to school and everything mm-hmm. and my dad's name is greg so Thanks, Greg. Every time they're like, thanks, Greg. <laughs> and so... I do recommend that show, though. Um, they oh, do, I've listened to it before. Yeah, they yeah. do some really... Podcast is... In my experience, podcast is pretty reliable, but they can kind of get sensational a little bit, in my experience. Yeah, well, I know they do some of the, like, audio, the Foley stuff, yes. almost. Yeah. Um, well, it's not... It's, it's very not produ- it's, it's very it's, produced. Yeah. There's sound effects. We, you know, we... The purpose of ours is to bring you history that's obviously very low production value <laughs> hi guys um but i really do appreciate podcasts that do so much research and like no it's very yeah. impressive so i but always like, recommend 
no, that, I think that one. That one's pretty good. I like yeah. listening to them. And maybe I was listening to one when I did. Mm, what was his name? The Ancient Creed crazy guy. Nero? You haven't done Nero? No, not Nero. The other guy. Caesar. No, you haven't done no. Caesar. Anyway, one of the ancient Greek rulers I did. Are you um, talking about Cal- Caligula? Calig- I can't Caligula. Say his name. Yes, Calig- yeah. him. It was just a little. Some of their notes, I was like, where are you getting this from? Not that I don't trust them, <laughs> but I was like, mm, I haven't seen this in literally any other source, but okay. <laughs> yeah, well, so. it's like, I wish we had a full production team behind us oh, to be do fantastic. research. Are you kidding? And we just have, would have to sit here and read notes. That would be amazing. <laughs> Instead, we're here making jokes about corn. Yep, absolutely. And you love us for it. Uh, we uh, hope. We hope. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, Maybe. yes, um, I, Parcast has some great shows. They have one on cults, serial killers. Yeah. I, I yeah. love their no, they stuff. Have, they have some really interesting stuff. Yeah. So I don't know how I, oh, I don't know how I got, oh, pictures. Yeah. Media sensational. No, it's because you said we're not trained professionals and it oh. reminded me of the Parcast yeah. thing. Um, but yeah, I would be interested to know from those pictures, you because they look proud of themselves in those pictures, but mm-hmm. I guess we'll never know. So that was their first almost being caught up with. The second is in the summer of 1933. Um, oh, no, sorry. It's not the second getting caught, but something in the meantime happens to make it a little bit harder for them, to, for Bonnie and Clyde to keep with their previous pace. Mm-hmm. Remember how I told you that um, Clyde drives with socks? Mm-hmm. E. So, um, they are driving Does in their car one day. crash? Yes. Oh, no. And it's not him that gets hurt. Oh. It's Bonnie. Oh. So, they're in the car. Um, and Clyde was known to be, like, a reckless driver. A pretty, like, speed demon, you know, mm-hmm. I'm gonna take this turn. But they're coming up on a bridge one day. And apparently, it, the bridge was out, and there was a... Uh, what is the term? Not a route, rerouted, but D a D D detour detour. Thank you. Yes. There's a detour sign, but he doesn't see it in time. Basically loses control of the car. They go over the edge and into a dried up Creek, like full impact. Um, obviously cars are not built the same way anymore, but the car battery essentially broke open or like exploded and it sent battery acid all oh, over geez. the right side of Bonnie's bar- body, mostly her leg. Oh my god. They managed to carry Bonnie to a nearby barn or like farmhouse and they pour baking soda and like a salve all over her leg to try and stop the chemical reaction, but it did some serious damage. We're talking like past third degree bone Ooh. burns like down to the bone in some areas from this acid yeah, in the battery. Like that's crazy. It's yeah, I'm amazed that like it didn't eat through like all of the muscle, but in some places it did. They did patch it the best they could. I don't know that even with a hospital, they could have done much to, pr- like, yeah. to fix that without modern technology. Mm-hmm. Even now there's some chemical burns just, so you can't ever. Well, it's from. just the amount of time it takes to get treatment. Yeah. True. Like, you know, like that damage is done. Yeah. And it's what you can, you do after. Mm-hmm. Cause what else would the hospital have done in 1934? Mm-hmm. Or whenever, but yeah. put baking soda on it, you know? Like. Yeah. Well, and for the next few months of her life, I mean, unfortunately, they only have another year or so together before their final famous standout. But mm-hmm. for the next few months, like, she had to hobble. She was, like, mm. limping noticeably. And he already did because of his foot. Mm-hmm. So they were kind of, like, 
making them, it, it was a lot harder for themselves. And she was so small already that it was reported Clyde would just carry her around half the time, hmm. which is kind of cute and romantic, but also like, no, like, your boyfriend uh... was not a very safe driver and yeah, burned you with battery acid. Like, that's not great. Um, <laughs> At least he stuck around, I guess. I mean, they both kind of committed to a situation here that they, they couldn't were... walk away from. Yeah, that's very true. They were united mm-hmm. one way or another. Yeah, so that does make it a little bit harder for Bonnie to move around and may have had a, played a role in how things go the second time that the police get close to them. This time, it's well, it's once again in Missouri, but it was Bonnie, Clyde, Buck, Blanche, and their friend Jones that had gotten, they'd gotten a couple cabins and they were going to stay there and lay low for a little while. The locals actually saw them and tipped off the police. It was a late night on July 19th, 1933, and the police get to the cabins and knock on the door. Blanche told them like, just a minute, I need to get dressed. And it, she's basically stalling and gives mm-hmm. enough time for Clyde to pick up an, like an automatic rifle essentially and start firing at the police, mm-hmm. which not great to fire without provocation. But also at this point, I don't think there's like, yeah, they, they know exactly to, why the police are there. Yeah. If they're getting caught, mm-hmm. they're going to jail. Yeah. No matter what. So what's another you know, assaulting an officer charge. Yeah. And everyone else pretty much ducks and covers in response as the police start firing back, except for Buck. He was trying to return fire and get shot in the head. Mm. Um, I, not dead yet, though. Oh. Like, survived. I don't know if it was like a side, like a scrape or what, but huh. it didn't kill him. And Clyde manages to get everyone, including Buck, to the garage and inside a car. They make their getaway drive, but the police manage to shoot out the tires in a window... The damage from the, well, the glass obviously shatters and we don't have safety windows at mm-hmm. this time, obviously. And it gets into Blanche's eye bad enough that she's like partially Ooh. blinded by it. Ooh. They drive through the night with just a few stops here and there for basically like bandage changes and putting on new car tires. They're trying not to stop because you know the minute someone sees that car they're gonna be like okay this has obviously been shot at it is Mm -hmm. full of bullet holes (laughs) we might want to call the police um but eventually at one point they're like okay we have to stop and rest and they stop in a park and don't know it but a local farmer has already called the cops (laughs) uh they had left bloody bandages nearby Uh. after changing them and the guy was like well um i mean what am I supposed to do? Yeah. I call the cops. Uh, and sir. Yeah. Hello, officer. Hello. <laughs> I have stuff in my yard. Um, the cops were not discretionary with the notification or news. So there's about a hundred people, including local farmers who get together. I mean, they join the national guard and the police and basically surround Bonnie and Clyde, Blanche, Buck and Jones. And on the morning of the 24th, they've been, They've been going for a while. Like, mm-hmm. they've been driving. Um, Bonnie sees them closing in first, and she yells or screams or something to alert them. Clyde and Jones immediately start returning fire out to where the people are, but Buck is pretty incapacitated by the head wound and can't move. He was hit several times with several bullets, and Blanche had been next to him. Hmm. So, Clyde, like, they kind of have to cut and run at this point, you know, even though Buck is his yeah. brother. Clyde tries to get in the car, but the gunfire messed him up, and he got enough hits from it that he swerves into a tree with a car, which crashes. Um, Bonnie, Clyde, and Jones together, after Clyde gets out of the car, run for it and make it across the river, 
where Clyde is able to find another car and drive them away. Hmm. Buck was severely injured during all this and died a few days later, which I'm kind of shocked that he held on from a head wound and then being shot multiple times at all. Yeah. Um, Blanche was put into custody. Clyde had at least four uh, gunshots that pierced his body in some way. Bonnie had been severely affected by Buckshot and like the this spray basically from like the guns around her. Um, although I don't know if she had any direct hits. Jones received a pretty nasty shot near the head that took off part of his, I don't know if it was like, it didn't obviously take off like his skull or anything, but it hit him and he takes off in a, the other direction after they get out of the car. He's like, I I'm bolting on my own and they don't see him again. John was later captured by police and gave them information that basically led them to eventually ambush, make their plan to ambush Bonnie and Clyde the next time because he basically told the cops how attached they were to their families. And when the police kind of realize, well, okay, let's explain it like this. Throughout their entire lives, they were devoted to their families. Their crime sprees, Mm -hmm. like in the midst of it, they would still make an effort to go home. Bonnie insisted on going. She would go home like every month or so. Like she told Clyde, like that's, that's the requirement. I got to see my family. And they would send, when they had extra money, they would send it home to their families if they needed help. Or if they were down on their luck, their families, families knowing what they were doing would send them like clothes and supplies. They weren't exactly like supportive, but they're like, we'll work with their situation and like love them nonetheless and try their best to support them however they could. Mm -hmm. Um, which is kind of crazy, but they didn't get, like, the in-laws didn't get along well at first because Bonnie's mother really didn't like his family. She was like, this man is the reason my daughter is, like, straight-up criminal. But she ended up working with them to communicate with Bonnie and Clyde because Bonnie and Clyde, knowing that it was risky, would try to stop by the family farms. And knowing they couldn't really stop because someone could be watching, they would write these notes inside a soda soda bottles Hmm. and throw them out the window as they drove by and Hmm. the family would like wait for a bottle with a message in it to appear and then they Hmm. would follow those instructions to like a rendezvous point so they could meet up with bonnie and clyde so like the families are almost Hmm. like in on it at this point yeah yeah but i feel like the families are like if they get caught they're going to jail so yeah so we just gotta roll with it yeah um but yeah they would again they were like dedicated to their families still and when they when the police captured John, uh, Jones, they were like, okay, what can we do with this information? Mm-hmm. Let's try and lure them into their families and catch them when they come back. The police tried some sort of maneuver that ended up putting the families, especially their mothers, in danger. I don't know if it put them in the crosshairs necessarily, but it was enough where Clyde kind of like went feral and mm. wanted to basically take revenge on all of the police for putting his families in, their families in danger. Mm. But their families managed to contact them and were like, no, 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 don't do it. That's a stupid idea right now. They're looking for you. Mm-hmm. Don't get revenge just on our sake. We're fine. And you don't want to huh. draw more attention to yourself than you have to right now. Mm-hmm. But this is when I think Clyde start to, starts to like devolve a little bit. Because... There's he seems very set on revenge all of a sudden. Mm. Um, there, there's. Well, you remember what happened to him when he was in jail in that um, Eastham Prison Farm. Mm. So in January of 1934, I think he 
reroutes that anger and that kind of revenge fantasy because they go back to Easton Prison Farm and instigate a jailbreak. It's, I mean, there's not a lot of details I found on the, like, how it happened. It might be because the people at the jail didn't really want to admit how it went down because it really exposed some flaws in their security that Bonnie and Clyde just show up and manage to, you know, throw a jailbreak for everyone. Um, but in the process, they managed to break out one of their old members named Ray Hamilton. Um, the prison did manage to recapture many of the freed prisoners within a while of their escapes, but in their breakout, Bonnie and Clyde shot guards with machine guns that ended up killing one, or I saw some sources that said maybe two. So it exposed some security flaws. They killed some guards. It was not a, uh, wholesome jailbreak mm. if there is such a thing so i think that kind of points not to de-evolution but like i think clyde's starting to lose touch with reality a little bit at this point and after this things escalate even more because some of the prison officials reach out and to a previous texas ranger captain frank hamer to help track them down and it takes about three months for Captain Hamer to like, this is where they are. This is what's going on. Let's get, let's get cracking. Throughout, um, the next three months, of course, they're still having to steal, rob, do whatever they can to supply themselves. Mm -hmm. And they are leaving that path for him. But he was also like a Texas Ranger. And if you know about Texas Rangers, they have a pretty controversial history. Yeah. Um, Texas Rangers. Yeah. Are they good at tracking people down? Yes. Are they good at their jobs? Yes. Was that always a good thing that was not used for evil? Uh, no. no. Did they take the things a little too far? Yes. Sometimes. Did some people impersonate the Texas Rangers and also give them a bad rap worse than they were? Arguably, yes. There's some conflicting ideas. But if you don't know... How do you explain the Texas Rangers to someone who's not from Texas? Um... <laughs> they were lawmen that weren't police. Yes. It's very much that kind of with them. It's vigilante justice, it's vigilante but like justice sanctioned. But saying, that's a good way to put it. It's very much the same kind of like mentality of like whatever you need to get done, like whatever needs to happen to get done mm -hmm. is allowed. It's kind of like the, the ends are greater than the means. Yeah. You know, I kind of mentality, but like with actual officers of the law mm -hmm. and in a time when racism in texas was rampant there was a lot of issues with systemic racism mm -hmm. going on among those ranks mm -hmm. that are very much not okay yeah yeah no it's uh i don't know too much you might know i feel like it's a bigger deal kind of in the dallas area yeah being from dallas maybe i'm just saying because the football or the baseball team is named the Texas yeah. rangers but we don't talk about them a whole lot actually up in yeah. dallas there's some people who are like dead set think that the texas rangers were like the best thing to ever happen uh -huh. because like bonnie and clyde they had a perception for a really long time of being like the vigilante like getting justice when everyone else mm -hmm. was inactive or you know they could they did what they had to do to keep things in line and they helped expand the west and like there's all these different perceptions of them but I've heard enough bad stuff about them where I don't endorse what they were doing. Mm -hmm. um, and also I've heard people say, you know, that, no, they actually really were good people, but there were just some really bad people impersonating them and they were the ones that were causing problems. And I'm like, I don't know how much I believe that. But mm -hmm. either way you shake it, 
Um, the Texas Rangers, a lot of them were really freaking good at their jobs. Yeah. They they could track people down. They could survive the Wild West, whatever you want to call it. Um, so, yeah. It says a lot that the prison people were like, okay, we're individually hiring someone now to come help us track these mm. two people down. Um, and, again, with film and everything going on at this time, a lot of the nation had heard about them through word of mouth through these outlets but a lot of that changes in 1934 they get pulled over by well not pulled over there's two motorcycle cops that find them and henry methvin is with them they're sleeping in their car out near grapevine which is not far from dallas hey that's where post malone's from oh nice (laughs) (laughs) that's every time Um, you hear grapevine that's that's all they can think of i think of the mall um, well, you're from the area. I don't. Yeah. I don't know anything about Grapevine. <laughs> well, either way, they're out in Grapevine. Um, they originally were approached because the cops wondered who was in this car off on the side of the road, just parked. They thought it was maybe like vagrants or people, like someone drunk who shouldn't be on the road, and they ch- approached to check it out. Clyde seemed to be much more of the kidnap and hold hostage until you get somewhere safer type. And in fact, they had done that multiple times with officers and with just civilians where they would like take someone hostage, make their escape, make it a couple hundred miles. And they would sometimes even drop them off with like money Hmm. and be like, hey, sorry for the inconvenience. Here's some money. Find yourself a way home, Hmm. which is like not again, helps with that persona of not being intentionally bad people. Like if you're giving your hostage victims money for a cab ride home, like you can't be all that bad, but It goes terribly wrong here. Clyde told Henry in some way, shape, or form, take him. As Mm in, they think he meant grab him. Like, let's Mm -hmm. take him with us as hostages. Mm -hmm. When we're far enough away that they can't, you know, get right back and tell them where we're going, we can... Yeah, do their normal hostage thing. But Henry considers the term take them as in, like, take them out. Oh. and That's not where I would go with that. Nope. Or Henry was just wanted to kill someone, was not listening to orders, but he turns around and shoots one of the cops that's approaching them. Mm. At that point, Clyde realizes, like, there's no coming back from that. You just Mm -hmm. shot a cop in front of another cop and shoots the other man who was literally, it was his first day on the job. Not great optics. Um, It's actually quite terrible. It's pretty bad PR. It's also on Easter Sunday. Oh, even worse. And the rookie that Clyde shot was young and had a fiance at home who was planning to get married soon. Oh, yep. The media jumps on this story. The fiance wears her wedding dress to the funeral, apparently. Like, every image that they could have garnered that was favorable at this point, everyone's like, oh my god. Like, they lost. They lost yeah, all yeah. their PR ground. Anyone that was left thinking, oh, they're just vigilantes, is now not seeing the cops as the enemy, but the civilian fiancé who was left behind mm-hmm. grieving in her wedding dress at her fiancé's funeral. Like, mm-hmm. entirely new context for people to understand this in. So, like I said before, they obviously love their families a lot. One of their friends in the Barrow Gang, that guy that was in the car with them that shot the first cop, Henry Methvin, he would communicate with his own family quite often. And it's not clear 
based on the research I saw about this, exactly what happened. If he was colluding with the police or colluding with his own dad mm. to try and turn in Bonnie and Clyde's location and get a pardon from the law. Mm. So either he willingly sold them out to the police, but some port reports make it sound like the police made this plan just based off of information they got from him. Mm -hmm. And like, he told him like, Oh, they really, really love their families. And they were like, okay, we can run with that and made this plan. Or some made it sound like he actually was like in on the plan. Mm. I'm not sure which it was, but either way they're like, okay, well, Bonnie and Clyde go back to their families quite often. What we need to do is find like be laying and wait for them, but we can't know when they're going exactly. So it was May 23rd of 1934 and Captain Frank Hamer was there, that Texas Ranger. They managed to get, like, predict where they're going early enough that by dawn, he and the other lawmen are hiding out in the bushes waiting for them to arrive. Somehow they got one of the Methvin family cars to the side of the road. I don't know with, if it was with or without Henry's help, mm -hmm. but they remove one of the tires so that it looks like the car has been pulled over. And this is out near Louisiana. Uh, it's, it's, I don't know how to pronounce it. Sayes? S-A-I-L-E-S? -E is it Sayes? No, it's not a double L. So it wouldn't be Sayes. It would be Silas. Si that Salus. sounds right. Salus? Salus, Louisiana? Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's a unique spelling, but it's a cool spelling. Um, so... They're out in that area, wait, lying in wait for them, and sure enough, they come across it, they kind of slow down, and reports get fuzzy here, as a lot of reports on high adrenaline mm -hmm. and vigilante cops and a million other people tend to be, but they were hoping that Clyde would pull over or at least stop long enough that they could ambush them. I'm not sure that due process even exists at this point, after the amount of cops that he killed and... I don't, I'm assuming that there was not a lot of warning given for them to like exit the car, you know, hands up, lay on the pavement. I doubt there was any of that yeah, at this point. No. So they probably had a shoot on site sort of order going mm -hmm. for them at, at this point they had murdered over a dozen people. I, nine would, say, of which were I would say chances are that it yeah. was a shoot on site situation. Yeah. Nine cops. And yeah. at least 13 people. So mm -hmm. not great. But they basically lay into them like bullets like you've never seen. They empty at least 150 into Jeez. the car and Bonnie and Clyde who are in the front seat. Um, immediately, because people are pretty terrible, they people were like running towards the car to get souvenirs from it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why there are people that have clips of Bonnie's hair. Oh my God. Her blood soaked dress. Oh my there are people trying to cut off Clyde's ear and his trigger finger mm. until the lawmen out there were like, what the hell are you doing? Obviously not going to like process the scene with forensics, but they didn't want like people mutilating the corpses yeah, just to like, get hey, a piece. Don't do that actually. Yeah. Um, the official statement said that Clyde had at least 17 holes in his body from those 150 rounds that went into the car. Bonnie had at least 26. It's very probable that most of them, that they had a lot more than that. Um, there were reports that 
Bonnie was shot more that someone like went up to the car and shot her mm. not point blank but like much closer to make sure that she was really dead mm. which is kind of terrible yeah that uh, seems unnecessary yeah reports also say that Bonnie was holding her half-eaten sandwich still in her hand which really says that they did not have enough time like the ambush was rapid there was yeah. probably no attempt at de-escalation or arrest it was just yeah. shoot on sight um because they were so riddled with bullets, the embalmers had a really hard time actually, like, embalming them. Ooh. Because there were so many holes in their bodies. Ironically, well, I don't know if this is an urban legend or if it's true, but they, one of the people that embalmed them and was taking care of the bodies for was, was one that they had actually kidnapped previously in one of their heists. Mm. And jokingly, Bonnie had laughed and, like, given him money and said, hey, whenever someone from the Barrow Gang dies, can you embalm them? Like, hmm. made a joke out of it, and he ended up embalming their bodies. I don't know if that's an urban legend or if that's true. It almost sounds too, you know, too poetic to not be a lie, but who knows with stuff like this. Yeah. I feel like... It's small town Texas, though, so... Yeah, I feel like something like that could happen. Yeah. It, it's, it, again, small town Texas, we feel yeah. like we can't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, their bodies were laid out, even with the bullet holes and everything, their bodies were laid out for public attendance and viewing apparently thousands of people came by Mm. they were laid to rest in different places though um which was explicitly against their wishes Mm. so bonnie's one of her i guess it would be a great niece or something at this point but one of her um descendants has actually as of 2019 still attempting to get her body exhumed and reburied next to clyde Mm. Um, which I found very, very interesting. But when she was in prison and when she was growing up, Bonnie was apparently very smart and eloquent and she would write poetry. They found some of this poetry when they found some of those pictures in their Mm -hmm. first uh, almost catching them. But she wrote a poem called The End of the Line before she died. And she seemed to understand the depth of their situation and the severity of the impendingness of their end mm-hmm. and the fact that she knew early on what she signed up for that she when she got involved with Clyde she was going to die with him someday like mm. she seemed to know because she wrote they don't think they're too smart or desperate they know the law always wins they've been shot at before but they do not ignore that death is the wages of sin someday they'll go down together and they'll bury them side by side to few, it'll be grief. To the law, a relief. But it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. Mm. So nice little she, rhyme in there. Yeah, she like wrote poems about wow. their own demise. Yeah. And, like, knew. So, I, it's hard for me to imagine, like, that she wasn't a willing participant at that point. You know, like, she, she had to oh, be. Yeah. At some at some point when her mother was warning her against joining Clyde and she said, mama, I love him. And, you know, <laughs> ran off with him. She knew what she was doing and yeah. she seemed to commit and be, you know, sound mind when she did. Mm-hmm. Like we said, it's obviously changed their historiography over time, even in the years that they were on their crime spree. The film does not help that. Um, the 1967 film, it's literally called Bonnie and Clyde. Um, definitely. I don't know how they got away with romanticizing it that much. Because it was 1967. That's true. I guess. I mean, 
uh, yeah. Uh, it's just hard for me, to, like, because it's not that long. It's, what, 40? No, not even 40 years. You're talking about, let's see, what day was that? 1934 to 1967. I can't do that math in my head. But that's like 30-ish years. 34 years or so. 33 years. Oh my god, I can't do math. 33 years. Ha! Yeah. You did it. Um, it's it's not long. It's not long. There's still like it's like it's still a living generation that remembers yeah. this when they were young. So it kind of surprises me that they had lost all that ill will, been murdered, and then made a romanticized movie about it. But maybe they didn't lose as much goodwill as I think they did. I think. That one, it was the 60s, and True. they were just making movies about everything. In the There's wild movies from the and 60s. Vigilante, I mean, I guess during it's, the civil rights era, vigilanteism would have been a whole uh-huh. new... Well, I think it's also, like, vigilanteism, and we also see the rise of, like, mob and gang movies. That's true. With, like, The Godfather, because mm-hmm. that's early 70s. So it's kind of happening where this, like anti-government anti-law mm-hmm. like outlaw thing is really popular and it probably came from it probably was like a natural progression from like westerns mm-hmm. because this is really a story about like the west that's true in america you know and it's that same outlaw mentality but it's just a little bit later than like westerns yeah yeah well and i i do think like the movie itself helps their international fame and for a lot of international people that's the only exposure they have to this story like they could have watched the old newsreels they could have caught it but they didn't like see a representation until it was really on the big screen like that so Mm -hmm. all of a sudden i think that's where we have the romanticization and like internationally coming out Mm -hmm. and it's still i still hear such mixed reviews i hear still some people who are like oh my god bonnie and clyde and it's like a musical it's like a sensationalized thing and then there's a lot of people who are like no like bonnie and clyde killed like a lot of people they they low-key were like serial killers they did it like in yeah in like succession with a reason a terrible reason but Mm -hmm. like they they were like formulaic and of sound mind when they were doing this they're really bad people so it's weird even in our day and age to see how people perceive it differently but it's definitely um Definitely something that I've heard talked about more lately, and I'm glad I did research on it because I was like, I I always assumed that they were married. I don't know why by the end of it. Because their names are always together. Yeah, probably that's what it was. But yeah. I just found it super interesting, and I was glad to kind of understand. Yeah. Because I've always heard, you know, that conflicting reports. But now I know, like, at least 13 dead, at least nine of them cops. Like, you shot a cop yeah. on his first day yeah. at the job you know like i see why people weren't big fans well it's also the same thing it's like you know when you talk about any i don't know people who kind of live outside the law it's like a lot of them in history did did kill a lot of people like oh, pirates yeah. were not good people oh no but we still have this like whole fantasy surrounding them because yeah. it's that idea of like escaping like society essentially yeah. um but it's kind of you know you have to I know that was your colorblind pilots can't fly moment yes as we discussed yeah. what last episode but like but pirates are a good example of that yeah well it's just kind of like you have to take you have to remember when you're talking about these things in history to take everything into account you know what i mean like you mm-hmm. can't get caught up in their oh wow they did all these things and like vigilante blah 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 or, like they were outlaws and it's so cool but like ooh, i also have to remember that like they did kill a lot of people and that's not good so mm-hmm. 
humans are capable human brains are capable of processing that humans are that humans are more than just like good and bad with this we obviously have very conflicting things but you know when any historic figure you have to kind of keep everything Mm -hmm. in mind and in context yeah contextualization is always part of history yes so well that was good cut thank you i don't know anything about bonnie and clyde and so now i know a lot more yeah, well, I Thank know we, we're going to not try to go as long, but I definitely went a little long on that one. It was a lot no, of notes. Okay, mine's short. Okay, well, it was just enough where I was like, I can't quite split this into two, but... Yeah, yeah, no, it's fine. You're fine. I could have probably... I could have gone really deep into, like, every one of their events, but I was also like, I want to do an AAPI it's better, one next week as well, well yeah, so. it's better... And I just did a two-parter. Yeah. With stuff like that, if you start to get repetitive, it's better to just not yeah. get repetitive. Yeah. Because um, at the end of the day, how many times do you want to hear, they went into a store, robbed it, and left? Yeah, exactly. Or you want to hear like 20 times? Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, well, that was good. Thank you, Kat. Yeah. Brava. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited for yours. Um, should we do a recommendation? Yes. What would you like to recommend? You know, I was sitting here thinking about multiple things because I started reading. Have you ever read the Unwind trilogy? Yes. Yes. You're, re- you're rereading them? Have, we've never had that conversation, have we? No. You're like the only one I know who's read them. Oh, really? It was huge yeah. at my school. It was not big at my school. Oh, it was massive at mine. Yeah. Um, and I listened to the audiobook last summer of the first one, but they only have the first one on audiobook, at least where oh. I can access it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm access, so sorry. Can access? I turn off the air? Yes. I'm freezing. <laughs> yes. I will ramble while Cad turns off the air. <laughs> um yeah no so i was thinking maybe that because i'm reading the second one because i have the like physical copies and it's uh they're interesting they're very interesting books um and then as we were sitting here thinking about or talking about gangs and all that stuff i'm like oh i really want to watch the godfather again Mm. so yeah one of those is my recommendation either unwind series or the godfather so well, I appreciate both of those. Sorry, I am half back. Um, <laughs> You're like I'm far like, away from the mic. No, I can hear you. Here, am I better now? Okay. Um, I don't have my headphones on. This is very odd not to hear myself when I'm talking into the mic. I think... Oh, my God. I will recommend... Hmm. What movies? Oh, ah. I'm going to oh break God. everything. Yeah, so you sorry. are. The Highwaymen. Highwaymen. That's that Netflix movie that came out a couple years ago. My dad loves that movie. Um, but it's about not Bonnie and Clyde, but like the men, the highwaymen that were like hunting them down. Oh, I do remember this. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, and my dad adores that movie. So that, that'll be my rec. I'll stay on theme this there week. There you go, on theme. Yeah. So All right. awesome. Well, I'm not sure which one yours is this week, because I know you, at one point, were thinking about flipping it around a little bit. I did. So, I was originally planning on doing something this week, but I had a really long day. As I said, up top, I've had a long week, and so I haven't had a lot of time to do notes. Um, So, I went with kind of the shorter, more chill of the two topics, which is... The drum roll... Hold on. That was a terrible drum roll surfing oh nice yes yeah i'm excited for this one so i just happened to see i don't even remember what i saw it might have been a tiktok it probably wasn't i feel like it wasn't though um but someone was talking about how like surfing actually has a pretty intricate history and i was like hmm, i never knew that and i wanted to look into that i can see that yeah like when you think about it it makes sense mm -hmm. but like you don't think about it yeah no no (laughs) so i'm like i gotta i gotta look into that so, 
here we go, a history on surfing, or as the it was traditionally known as in Hawaii, water sliding. So, or wave swiping, wave sliding. Okay, there we go. Okay. <laughs> um, so it has. We aren't really sure exactly where or when it's from. We can trace its origins back to Polynesia. Um, and modern surfing really takes place anywhere that has waves. Like, you know, it's mm-hmm. very global at this point. Um, and we know that, like, the Polynesians, like, ancient Polynesians came up with it. But we aren't pin- able to pinpoint an exact, like, specific culture within the kind of the Polynesian Pacific or um, a date or anything. There's a few things we know that it existed by, but we don't know how long it existed before that. Okay. Um, we do know that it had a, like, a sort of religious significance in Polynesian culture. It was kind of like a whole way of life and not just a sport. It really dictated a lot. Tahitans and Samoans even used it as a way to train their warriors for battle because it was like a really difficult sport to master yeah well the um, core strength and balance alone is yeah, incredible so it makes sense um earliest evidence we have of surfing can be traced back to 12th century polynesia where there where there have been cave paintings that have been found that clearly illustrate what is obviously surfing mm-hmm. um and it is the Polynesians that we believe brought surfing to Hawaii, along with a lot of other parts of their culture. Um, and Hawaiians were really ones to embrace it and kind of really incorporate it into their everyday life. And that's like throughout, it's lasted in Hawaii, like throughout history. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as we know, these are island nations and island cultures so like their life is really really oriented around water so it would make sense that something like surfing or just playing around in the waves would not only be just become like a sport that they enjoyed but also get involved with like religion and everything like that right um other things like that are like canoeing swimming like these people were very 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 comfortable in the water we do know so we have those 12th century cave paintings we also have um the written accounts of <laughs> Captain James Cook, who's very famous for his travels in the island nations of Polynesia and like in the Pacific and everything like that. Um, though I will say I saw on a different site that it might have not have been his specific diaries, but rather someone on his crew named William Anderson, who was a surgeon. Whether or not... <laughs> He was there the whole time, so whether or not it was actually James Cook's writings or this William Anderson guy, it doesn't really matter because we know that they witnessed Tahitian surfers in 1778, and they were, like, just basically mesmerized and perplexed. Mm -hmm. If you Google kind of, like, ancient surfing or history of surfing or anything like that, um, drawings will come up, and these are drawings found in these accounts from these kind of first Europeans to discover Mm-hmm. people doing this um and you can see like <laughs> and you know they might be a little exaggerated but like a lot of people are out on the water like this is something that everyone does and mm-hmm. takes part of um the diary provides readers with a lot of really valuable information that um we wouldn't have today if this diary didn't exist and this is obviously about surfing but it's also just about kind of like how the um 
Polynesian Pacific kind of interacted with water and all of those things. Um, because as we know, colonizers took over. And so a lot of those yeah. things were kind of lost to time. So it's really great that we have this diary. Um, and to be clear, these people did not do the colonizing, though it is likely that they were what caused the colonizing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they just like came and saw and left, but then that, then they told all their friends about it and then they came and saw and stayed, which is, you know, that, yeah. um, <laughs> they, there's accounts of them, you know, really just being amazed and perplexed by surfing because they had never seen anything like it. Um, they were, there's accounts about how they were really concerned because the waves, they're like, Oh my God, how can they like, how can they do this when there's all these jagged rocks and it's so dangerous and like they're just so comfortable in doing this. And it just, it really amazed them because they hadn't seen a culture that was so comfortable in the water. There's accounts of them saying that men would jump off their boards right before reaching those jagged rocks and even smiled while doing it. And it was just, they were just so blown away by this. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a quote from the diary that says, quote, I could not help concluding that this man felt the most supreme pleasure while he was driven on so fast and so smoothly by the sea. So, like, this is a big, big deal. Mm-hmm. And I forgot to mention this up top. I skipped a bullet. But we do know that there's evidence of surfing or surfing kind of like things, um, both in West Africa and Peru at the time oh, cool. that we see, like, ancient evidence of. So while it's not, like... The surfing we know of today, it's it's like similar kind of things. They're, they're using a board. They're on the water. They're mm-hmm. floating around doing stuff like that. Um, so we do know <laughs> that there's a lot of kind of structure. And because this was such a cultural practice, specifically in Hawaii, there's a lot of structure that went into traditional surfing. Um Apparently, most of ancient Hawaiian society was governed by a rule of code, uh, a code of rules and taboos, which were known as kapu or kapu. Um, and surfing was no different because it was part of the culture. So there was all these really strict rules that you had to kind of follow when you surfed. Um, traditionally, it was used as a mean of keeping powerful leaders in top shape. Again, it kind of goes back to that physical mm-hmm. endurance and just training mm-hmm. because it's so hard. It requires to... a lot of dedication. Well, like, I can I'm see gonna... why that would be a good measure of a leader. Yeah, it's hard with modern surfboards, but these... Let... I'll get back... To... I'll get down to the tr- description of the surfboards because these were not, you know... Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, these were these were different. Um, there's evidence of early Hawaiian serving competitions that were used to do anything from subtle disputes and to just like having like placing bets and wagers and you know all of this stuff and um there was kind of there was all these prayers that were associated with each step of the process so there was a prayer when you selected the tree to carve your board out of you left an offering where you left the hole though you took the wood Mm -hmm. um you would pray to the gods when you entered the water if you um took a spill you would pray to the gods to say thank you for not for letting me live when i Mm -hmm. took a spill so it was like a lot of very ritualized um stuff about this and these prayers were done with the help of a kahuna or priest. So it was like a, it was a really standardized practice. Um, Constructing, as I mentioned, constructing surfboards was viewed as a sacred act. They built their boards from three certain types of trees, which were the koa, the breadfruit, or the wheelie wheelie. When they selected the tree and kind of dug up 
what they were the wood they were going to use as a surfboard they would fill the empty hole with fresh fish as a way to sacrifice and acknowledge the gods and like mm. thank the the gods for the sacrifice for the board cool um it was really closely tied to the ruling class like just the pure skill like the ruling class were like these people can surf like these that's how they're kind of ruled and i think i'm not sure how often this happened but there is evidence that we have of like the best surfer then becoming like chief or in oh, charge okay. like so this is like really tied to High like stakes. yeah leadership structure and everything like um and even if they weren't going to become chiefs or anything like that really really good surfers gained like high levels of notoriety within traditional hawaiian or ancient hawaiian society society and so <laughs> like the the surfers who did really really well would be actually brought into like the court basically oh wow yeah so th- some were just honored by the chief courts which was a pretty high distinction but others were actually brought on and selected to be the chief's personal advisors oh so wow this is like this is Battle a way well yeah it's a it's a way to have some upward mobility you know yeah and i don't know too much about ancient hawaiian like society but um not a lot of places had super at this time at least had really good ways to kind of move up through the ranks of the world so Mm -hmm. it's really interesting that they valued this skill so much that that allowed for that um men and women of all social classes were able to participate together and this is something that will come up later so keep that in mind but this was really a sport for everyone and so you could be you know lowest of the low and if you were a good surfer like you had a way to move Mm -hmm. up and like game fame for yourself and a position for your family and all of this like really interesting stuff so traditionally hawaiians would surf on three different types of boards these boards um would range anywhere between um kind of like human height so six feet ish Mm -hmm. anywhere to i saw some sites with some sites saying that the tallest boards or the longest boards rather could be up to 24 feet long so, like, these things are huge, huge. Um, I was expecting a reaction out of you from that. No, the, no I'm, like, trying to picture. My, co- <laughs> my cousin surfs, and yeah. he's, like, 6'5". So, my, in my brain, I'm, like, trying to, like, place that next to each other. And I'm a little, like... So, modern-day longboards are... I looked it up, and I'm remember- or I'm forgetting now, of course. Well, yeah. No, I'm just thinking about, like, 6'5 cousin. How tall would things be compared to him? Yeah. Yeah. Um, because modern day longboards obviously are long. Yes. Um, yeah. So modern day longboards are like over eight feet tall. Okay. So this is three, the equivalent of three modern longboards. Yeah. Okay. That's <laughs> yeah. That's massive. So huge. Like I, I can't even imagine like a whole tree. Yeah. I I literally cannot even imagine. I can't. I. No. I just. It's. That's, I can't, like, imagine carrying around a 24-foot pole. No, yeah, I can't. And then add all the weight from an actual board to it. Yeah, I just, no. It's insane. I am weak. I feel weak just hearing (laughs) this. And, and, sorry, but we had to re-record because GarageBand was being dumb. But, I might have mentioned this, but it also is coupled with the fact that these traditional surfboards did not have any sort of fin or anything, any steering mechanism. Oh, yeah. So, in the water, like, 
it the steering was all up to the surfer too so like mm-hmm. it had to be with like hand or feet controls like mm-hmm. that's just that's so much wood to move around it's just it's crazy so um hawaiians traditionally surfed on three main types of boards that ranged anywhere between um i would say maybe six feet to as big as 24 feet um the kind of primary type that people rode were then uh, were called alaya boards these were thin mid-sized and really closely resemble the modern short boards so like something that we would be more familiar with like size wise mm-hmm. um but again it didn't have any fins or anything like that some chose to ride the pipo boards which were short boards with rounded noses and these would kind of be shorter than like an average person mm-hmm and these boards were designed so that riders would ride them on their stomach, so it wouldn't kind of be that traditional, like, it's you get like up on the board. board. Kind of like you stay yeah, it's kind of like, okay. yeah, a boogie board, um, but bigger than, okay. like, a, bo- a boogie board is. And authentically correct. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to, when I do stuff like that, it's not to, like, undermine the, or, like, original thing that I'm sure the boogie board is based off of. My brain's just trying to connect Yeah, I mean, it, it helps. Like, no disrespect to the actual board, which is the original that I'm sure the boogie board is. Yeah, I mean, it helps because we don't have those boards anymore, so it yeah. helps to kind of have a connection there. And only the chiefs, and I saw, depending on the article I looked at, it kind of said two different things for this, but only the chiefs could ride, like were physically skilled enough to ride or were allowed to ride the longest of the board. So up to 24 Mm. feet long. Um, These were called Olo boards and they could be like starting, starting size. They were twice as long as today's long boards and long boards are over eight feet tall. Oh my God. So these are huge boards and again it it's it's kind of like because if it it does because like i said like chiefs were like very skilled surfers Mm -hmm. but earlier like some some i'm not sure if this was a dominant thing throughout all of like hawaiian history i'm sure it's not but at some point in time chiefs were chosen by how skilled they were at surfing and so (laughs) with a chief like only being the one to like use that board like yeah if someone could manipulate that board in the water and, it's gonna like, be the chief it's gonna be the chief and i'll be like yeah that guy that guy he can tell me what to do i'm yeah. not gonna argue with that guy that guy just threw something three times my length over his shoulder and and r- 200 pounds with it. yeah yeah i'm not sure if i mentioned this already but these boards could be up to 200 pounds in weight and so just like carrying that what on your shoulders it's going down to the water and then like it's just incredible strength it's crazy yeah, it really is. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, you know, this was, we lost a lot of this connection to surfing when, as we lost a lot of, a lot of things when the colonizers kind of got involved. So as I mentioned earlier, James Cook, that captain, his voyages drew attention to the islands of the Pacific, which soon meant that white people were swarming the region of these, the earliest people we see colonizing were actually missionaries, specifically Calvinist missionaries in Hawaii. Kind I did of not took... associate the Calvinists. With... Yeah, no. I just, I was like, really? Calvinists? Were they even really relevant that... enough to have missionaries? Well, like, I knew, like, <laughs> like obviously, because in America, they, but I just, wow. Okay. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, that one kind of threw me too. I was like, okay. Um, I associate them with, like, early colonial period. Yeah. Just to know, just to give an idea of, like, how devastating this was for Hawaii specifically, and I'm sure for a lot of islands in kind of the Polynesian part of the world, 
When Cook traveled to these islands, population estimates ranged anywhere from 400,000 to 800,000 Hawaiians living in the on the island chain. By the end of the 19th century, so by like 1890, there were only 40,000 Native Hawaiians left. Yep. Oh my god. Yeah. So like, wait, like on the lower end of that estimate, we're talking a 90% oh my. cut of the population. I knew it was bad. I didn't know it was that. Like, I knew it was really, really bad, but I didn't realize it was like 90% of yeah. the population. Oh my God. Yeah. So this, of course, is a lot. A lot of this is caused by diseases, but it's also a lot of it is caused by the process of colonizing, which is never no one that just, you know, just snap your fingers and say, okay, I rule you now. It's pretty devastating to anything and it's really devastating to the hawaiian culture because these calvinist missionaries because there's only forty thousand hawaiians left were really able to exert their influence over these hawaiians um and would specifically forbid like completely ban or outlaw many of the traditional cultural practices Mm -hmm. like in the islands so this obviously vastly changed society on the islands and you can still see that today and surfing kind of fell out of well one it was banned <laughs> yeah that, <laughs> so they couldn't that'll do, do it. it um but just there's like not a lot of people left to do it so a lot of these really really rich traditions that kind of went along with it were lost um they didn't <laughs> the calvinist missionaries specifically banned surfing because they disapproved of the quote constant intermingling without any restraint of people of both sexes so they didn't like the fact that men and women could go out and surf together which is just wait ridiculous okay i know that colonization like this is the definition of colonization but sometimes i get really like just stuck on how like ignorant you have to be of other people's cultures and practices to literally ban it just because it doesn't fit with yours and i know that's the whole definition of colonization it's still insanely frustrating it just never sits with me until i hear some stupid bull like that like no it's it's... imagine like being like oh yes you have an entirely different culture where you appreciate each other's bodies differently and Mm -hmm. you have different standards and because it does not fit my version of that yeah well what i tried to kind of i i looked for like a reason more than just like the mingling of sexes i was like okay maybe that they're upset because maybe the like what they wore to surf Mm -hmm. didn't fit within like what these missionaries thought was appropriate Mm -hmm. for them to be wearing at the time so maybe it's like the the what they're wearing coupled with the fact that they're like mm-hmm. hanging out together. So maybe mm-hmm. they see it as too revealing to be intermixing like that. But I didn't see anything like that. Like I didn't see any references to what they were wearing. It was more the fact that they were doing like that. something together at It all. really just seemed like it was just some, they were upset that they were doing stuff together. Yeah. <sighs> Which is just, that's so dumb. Like <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. So for whatever reason, whatever stupid reason they came up with. And breaking news colonization is dumb yeah yeah if you didn't know that before um <laughs> we we, we're coming we're coming to you live with that that update it's our hot take of the day um but what's good is that very quickly kind of after this happens it's it's not good for the hawaiian people but it's it helps save surfing in other parts of the hawaiian culture um is that hawaii very quickly after surfing kind of was banned became a really popular tourist destination. So in 1893, 
the ruling monarch of Hawaii is dethroned and I that's actually the episode I put off to do this one because that's a really intricate history or it seems really involved and I wanted to be able to have the time to do that right um sorry guys we've been having some weird technical problems so if at any point our audio sounds weird I I I'm sorry, but I really don't know how to fix it. So I'm going to try to get through the rest of this as fast as I can. Um, So uh, the surfing kind of lost its like significance. I don't want to say it lost its significance, but lost its popularity within Hawaiian culture at kind of the end of the 19th century. But what happens really soon after that is Hawaii becomes a really sought after tourist destination. And this is for a few things. One, the biggest one is that um, the U.S. actually annexes Hawaii as um, a territory in 1898, I believe, somewhere around there. Um, And this means that all of a sudden there's this big push to for white Americans to come settle the state or settle the island so that it will one day become a state, which is just not great. Mm -hmm. But one thing it does do is it really, it's allows people to preserve the surfing kind of culture that's there. And which is really good because we might have lost it for forever. It's like the one silver lining out of this. So in 1907, American industrial industrialist, Henry Huntington hired a man named George Freeth, who lived, who was a Hawaiian who lived in Hawaii, but he hires him from Hawaii to come and promote this new water sport of surfing in Southern California. And so when he does that, it takes off. And that's where we get the whole Southern California surfing culture. Hmm. And it be kind of, it's, it's a part of surfing culture now as a whole, but like it kind of becomes its own thing too at this point. And this helps kind of popularize surfing again and preserves it. Another really big figure in this fight to kind of preserve uh, surfing is Duke Kana, Kahanamoku. Ka, ka, I'm so sorry. Kahanamoku. And this guy, he is a really, really, really strong surfer. He's so strong, in fact, that he wins five Olympic medals for swimming. Oh, jeez. Um, yeah, in his lifetime. So at around 1914, he actually travels to Australia and New Zealand, and he does do a few exhibitions in Southern California as well. But he mainly is re- the one responsible for bringing surfing to Australia and New Zealand in those areas. So he um, he and his friend George Freeth are really the ones that are credited for kind of preserving the sport and making it popular worldwide now. Because now from this point, it's like a worldwide phenomenon. So another big figure who helps popularize surfing is, interestingly enough, the American writer Jack London. Um, what? He visits Waikiki, and after that, he publishes several accounts of surfing in different popular American magazines. He describes surfing as the sport of kings, um, and so he helps it bring worldwide fame as well. But unfortunately, all of these things and what I'm about to talk about next means that Hawaii is like now being colonized even more than it was before so Mm -hmm. it's it's kind of a double-edged sword there um so it was like native individuals were leading the re popularization of sporting so we have like George George Freeth and the Duke Kanahakamoku but like so they're natives and it's really great that they're getting like their traditional practices to be preserved and appreciated worldwide. However, this very quickly becomes exploited by white settlers. 
um, who have the aim of eventually making Hawaii a state. And they're always looking for reasons to like bring more people to Hawaii. So in the early 1900s, a man from South Carolina named Alexander Hume Ford moved to Hawaii and quickly became a champion of the sport. He was going to convince everyone that it was the surfing was the greatest sport ever, which is really great, except for the fact that most of his champion work was literally done just to bring white settlers to Hawaii. Mm, um, nope. Yeah, so it wasn't just like to get... one to save the tradition of the sport and to like make it other people appreciate it it was like literally for the specific reason of bringing white settlers to hawaii that's terrible um yeah so as i said by this point hawaii had been annexed by the u.s but it's not yet a state um ford and along with most white settlers in the islands at this time really wanted it to become a state but they had some concerns. They didn't like that most of the residents were non-white and that it had a large labor force comprised mostly of Asian workers. So they were like, hmm, how do we solve this? We don't Kaylee, want... Kaylee, are you saying that there was racism involved? What? No. <laughs> racism no. in 1900s? In America? Well, not even America. Like, yeah, just Amer- a place America wanted. Uh-huh. Yeah. So... He, this guy Ford started promoting surfing, not because, not just because it was a really cool sport. I think he, he did actually like the sport, but I think a bigger part of him saw it as like a way to attract people to the islands. Um, this wasn't help because writers and filmmakers throughout the first half of the 20th century also really glamorized Hawaii and made it seem as this like exotic tropical destination. It's not exactly Orientalism, but it was very, very closely related and so, yeah. Fortunately, those, this does not work. And when Hawaii was made a state in the 1950s, it was the most uh, racially diverse state in the nation. And what I was the one of the sources I was looking at said that it might still be one of the most racially diverse states in the nation. So he didn't get what he wanted. But still, screw that guy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So, um now I'm going to get into a little more of like the the modern history and how it kind of turned into the sport that we know today. So a man by the name of Tom Blank, who was inspired to start surfing by Duke Kahanamoku, designed a more lightweight board because, again, these were really heavy yeah, at the time. Yes. Um, and so he designs a more lightweight board that actually would set eight new world records in championships in 1930. So like already we're starting to improve on the technology and all this stuff. Five years later, he was the one to actually put the first fin on the board. He took a metal fin from an abandoned speedboat and affixed it to the bottom of the board. And these were such a game changer that within two decades, so by 1950, every surfboard had them. Oh. Like, this was revolutionary. People were like, why have we not been doing this for hundreds of years? Well, I wonder like, if there's anyone that kept with the traditional... I'm sure that there's today people who yeah. keep like to, with the to appreciate it and like, yeah. yeah, but as a sport, like yeah. as a practice in the sport, to standardize. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> then comes World War II and which means a lot of American service members were now stationed in Hawaii and that helped popularize the sport there because they were like, oh, it's a pastime and they were helping surfing and staying fit. And so when they came back from Hawaii, they popularized it across the country World War II also meant that there was an influx of materials like fiberglass and resin Mm. that were used in the war effort, but they became available to surfboards designers to use after. So now we have surfboards made out of fiberglass and resin. 
Um, and I'm not sure exactly what they're made out of today, but I'm pretty sure it's fiberglass and resin. That would sound right to me. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, as well as I know. Yeah. yeah. Um, so these obviously were much more lightweight than heavy wood and they were much more slick because they're not absorbing any water from the ocean and everything. So they increased performance so dramatically. Uh, I have it in my notes that we still use the same materials today. <laughs> nice. Um, probably some more than just resin and um, fiberglass, but they're definitely involved in the process. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks to media exposure from movies like Gidget and bands like the Beach Boys and the development of surf magazines in the 1960s, surfing, they this just became an insane like cultural movement and remains so to today. Um, and it's really cool to see that like, in such a short time, you know, 50 years from when this was almost yeah. lost, like, it's globally embraced. Yeah. Well, it's like, I've never done it, but, like, I can't imagine not knowing what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this became specifically, like, um, a really big cultural thing in the 1960s in Southern California, and it sparked a very unique subculture. Of course, we all know the surfer culture. Yeah. Just like we all know the skater culture. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, like, it's it very, very iconic. Um so this culture originates in Southern California, but spreads around the world. So we can see surfer culture in South Africa and Australia at this time. Um, this was also really popular because people like would go make like little indie movies about like the surf culture and like all nice. this stuff because skating, like skateboarding wasn't a big thing yet. Like skateboarding was still in its infancy, mm-hmm. at least in America, like at this time. So, it, but these two like kind of subcultures have always been very close to me or closely related to me. So like it would make sense that like with as much attention that skating got, mm-hmm. surfing would also get that much attention, especially in the sixties when they're like, Oh, there's these young whippersnappers. It's like the hippies yeah, and everything. The, the kids. these Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, um, a lot of this culture was thought to have been based on the free-spirited beatnik philosophies of the of the 50s of the 50s so it's like just a development of another type of subculture because society was so freaking tight in the 50s that they needed to have something to do like yeah. please let me express myself yeah <laughs> um so this includes unique vernacular that was kind of its own language which is we all know today yes. that's very very popular yes. but this is where we start getting people using like the word dude or wipe out or hang ten like all those terms come from there there's also kind of a uniform of sorts which included like t-shirts striped pendleton shirts narrow white levi's jeans and ray-ban sunglasses and bleach blonde hair mm-hmm. um it was really really male oriented which is like not great we don't love that especially since the traditional surfing was so accessible to everyone mm-hmm. um but it yeah it, so it became this whole movement that we can still see today like everyone knows about surfers and the california like surfer dudes like everyone knows that um however of course at the time their parents did not like this and they were characterized as being indolent wasteful selfish and institutionally unanchored um, as of pastime, surfing was. So, oh, yeah. Heaven, so, heaven forbid. Heaven forbid that they're exercising. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what helped kind of move past this persona and into a more kind of legit sport was the development of organized surfing competitions. Oh, yeah. Um, in 1953, the Waikiki Surf Club hosted the first international surfing championship for men and women at Makaha, Hawaii. This was um it's known as the official birth of the sport of surfing so this is like the one 
pinpoint event that is like, okay, now it's an official sport. Um, they awarded points for the length of ride, number of waves caught, the skill, the sportsmanship, and the grace on the board. And so throughout the later half of the 20th century, this kind of grows and grows. Um, it does stay predominantly as a men's sport until... Um, so a professional women's circuit develops in 1977. It starts in 1977, but until then, there were so few women competing that they would actually just be included in men's events because they didn't have enough to like make a no uh, their whole own league, league yeah. or anything. Yeah. Um, but even well, though they had, at least they let them participate in men's leagues and yes. just ban them. Yeah. That's, that was what I was kind of thinking too. Like, okay, well at least it's not great, that. but it's not as bad as other <laughs> yeah. stuff in America going on. Like, yeah, that exactly. Would ban sports that would ban women entirely. Yeah. So, um, even though we had this like women only league develop in the 1970s, it wasn't until the mid nineties that women actually really started taking up surfing in large numbers. And this is because two things happened. One thing was a woman by the name of Lisa Anderson and Lisa Anderson was the first woman that we kind of know that could surf on the same level as men, because until then it was kind of the debate of like, well, you could be super aggressive like men usually were with the sport, mm-hmm. or you can be more graceful and treat it more as kind of like an art form. Mm-hmm. Lisa Anderson set the scene and was like, screw that. I'm going to be just as aggressive as these male surfers. And so she was the, really the first one to the first woman to be like, no, this is how women's surfing is going to be. And she kind of set that from the then on. So like it was same physically demanding, very aggressive form of surfing that like she pioneered like so she's the one who was like yes women are going to surf this way mm-hmm. and she kind of ended that discussion another thing that. i know right I'm like, on the end of the sentence girl boss yeah girl boss absolutely so another thing was the issue of women's swimwear if you think about what women wear to swim mm-hmm. versus having how much you have to move around on a surfboard mm-hmm. it's kind of like those two things don't go together yeah um and so it wasn't really until the 90s that we had, like, swimwear that women could use to surf in. Right. Um, and so with that being more accessible to the general public, which means more people are getting interested in surfing, or more women are getting interested in surfing because they don't have to, like, worry about something popping out where it shouldn't be popping out of. Mm-hmm. Um, which is sadly still a discussion these days. Yes. I mean, it's like, look at the Olympic runners for women uh-huh. versus men. Uh-huh. And, like... Look at the volleyball players with the required. I know required. that stresses me out How, so much. Well, it makes me mad because like men are allowed to wear like the full length shorts. Oh, it's, it's absolutely. And the women are, are required to wear these like little uh-huh. booty shorts. And I'm not saying that if a woman wants to wear those, she. Well, shouldn't it's like be the able volleyball to, like, players too. Ex- yeah, that's it's, what I'm saying. It's yeah. volleyball. It's running. It's it's even mm-hmm. brought up in swimming. Like it's not fair. Like yeah. you're literally not allowing women to mm-hmm. wear something that you're allowing men to wear because of. Uh, mm. Yeah. yeah, no, it's, I can't it's, imagine trying to surf in. I can't this imagine clunkier, with how much like, you have to move around. On, yeah, and no, no, no. I just yeah, it, it's also insane that it takes until the mid nineties. That's ridiculous. That surfwear is actually developed for women, but mm-hmm. at least it's there now. Yep. Um. So today, obviously, a surfer is a major, major sport. Estimates say that there's around 30 million people participating in it worldwide. Um, and what's really, really cool, and I think it's very fitting because it happening it happened the same year as skateboard, but in 2020, the International Olympic Committee voted to unanimously voted unanimously to make surfing an event in the 2020 really? Summer Olympics. Yeah, so now surfing and skating are both official Olympic events. And I think that that is just such a huge thing 
because yeah. it's really come so far in how it's been perceived at the pub in the public and it makes sense that surfing and skating happened at the same time yeah because they're so like their histories are very different Linked, but, but yeah but still but still very similar. there's a lot of parallels yeah yeah um what's really cool about that is that tony hawk who obviously everyone knows tony hawk like yeah. he's one like the main person like him and a few other people are the main person people to legitimize skateboarding as an actual sport yeah you can like and they're still here to see and it they're happen. still like he's in his what 50s like, yeah that's he so still crazy skates. To me. like yeah he still skates and he was there he they invited him to the first olympics when i love that i know i was if they hadn't invited him it would have been like a slap to the face oh but, yeah like it's just oh, it's so cool and I, I love to see it and it's so cool to see again something that was almost lost mm-hmm. be valued so much internationally that As it's a, now it's a now part. a world event yeah, yeah. absolutely so um this is it's a very you know just like any other industry it's a lot of money goes into it with professional surfers making multi-million dollar salaries california boasts nice. bringing in around 140 billion dollars in surf surf tourism in 2018 that's billion with a b wow 140 in one year so like this is a huge huge deal um one side it was it was like kind of a site for servers and they were talking about like yeah obviously we've made all these like advancements but you know the most important thing is just just get out there with your board like doesn't matter what board you have or anything mm-hmm. um which is very much the same with skating so it's it's kind of funny but they did talk about like into the future um and with the infusion of technology that we have into the sport um, some surfers are beginning to use drones to follow them around and take really cool videos and pictures of them, which is like, that's a lot of fun. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm sure surfing technology is really difficult. Yes. Um, or surfing photography is really difficult. Oh, I'm sure. Because the photographer also has to be a surfer. <laughs> I won't lie. Some of my favorite pictures, my cousin, he married a photographer. Oh, really? And they go surfing together. Oh, and that's like, fun. I've never gone surfing, but like some of the pictures, they got married on their surfboards because wow. it was during COVID. Yeah. So they like literally just paddled out, got got their minister go. to go with them and she wore a white bikini and he wore a black S- swimsuit and like that's they funny. literally just got married out on their surfboards and the pictures from it are actually like phenomenal. Oh, I bet they're, I bet they're really cool. But um, one but interesting yeah. thing I saw is that Samsung actually has a prototype surfboard that connects a Galaxy phone to a display screen built into the board, which I think is a little unnecessary, that's but it's a little, but if you could do it, why not? Yeah. But that might be something. I'm sure there will the be future. a market for it. Yeah. So other than that, that's, that's all for me. And so I was, I was, I was really excited to do this topic and I was, I, I learned a lot because I didn't know a lot about surfing and I hope that everyone else did too. I'm really glad you did because I think I'm going to the beach the week that this one gets released. I think you're going to Galveston though uh yeah not far from it well there, i'm gonna tell you right now there's no way oh, i know there's no <laughs> i know but like it gets me in the beach it gets me in the yes. mood and for the sand and the waves that is very true well and i forgot to say like I, the reason i chose bonnie and clyde for this week is because their death is like mm-hmm. the day before this episode mm-hmm. i think it's released yeah like yeah so it's a very thematic week well I get it's also summertime and, and it's you know it's, yeah it's all of that good stuff but but yeah, that's fantastic. Thank yeah. you. I've always been curious and I've always had like a general idea of where it came from, but like, yeah, no, it was I didn't really know cool. it had almost gone like completely extinct. Yeah. So, that's... I mean, heartbreaking the reasons why and, you yeah. know, obviously... And it sucks that it only survived because it got whitewashed in a way. Well, but, like... that's, it, it didn't only survive because of that. Right. But, but like, I'm, it, I'm... it was part of the it, reason. Yeah. 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 But, so... um, that's really, really cool. And yeah. So anyway. Nice. Yeah. 
Well, well, I don't know how to finish it. I, I, well, I had a, I had a fun time with these notes. So. Good. We've started recording pretty early in advance. Like we're in the first week or so of the month, and we're already recording through the end. So, hopefully, by the time this gets released, we have the rest of them because we're our vacations are basically overlapping. So we had to record for pretty far in advance. Yep. Um, but that means that we get to um, hopefully next week be talking about my. I'll get to do another AAPI mm-hmm. event and. I don't know if you... You already did two, right? I've already done two, um, but I think that if I remember right, that episode will come out on my mom's birthday, oh. so I might ask so her... So you get, let her choose? Yeah, Tuesday, 31st, yep. So nice. I might ask her what she what she wants to hear, so... Fantastic. Yeah. Well, and if y'all want to choose what we talk about, you can always, you know, tweet at us at T-I-N-A-H-T-I-N-A-H-L podcast. <laughs> Or if you want to email us, that is this is not a history lecture at gmail.com. And please, please, please remember to rate us wherever you can. That really helps us out. Ratings are like the number one way we get boosted in whatever algorithm we're dealing with at the time. So mm-hmm. we really appreciate that. Um, and thank you to the uh, people who have been listening. Uh, that w- I posted a TikTok, and ever yeah. since then, like we we're really grateful for the support we've gotten Absolutely. and stuff. So thank you yeah. guys. Um, and every review you leave is more cornbread so that Kaylee can commit to the corn. <laughs> okay. All right. That'll work, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I, well. I don't, yeah. <laughs> In the meantime, we hope everyone um, stays safe and healthy. I know there's a lot up in the air in the nation going on right now, and hopefully it has not gotten worse since we've recorded this. <sighs> but only time will tell. Hang in there, and we will come. We'll, we will be back with you again, hopefully next week, with more history. Absolutely. So this is just a reminder that this has not been a history lecture. Bye. Bye.